don't know this, then you're behind the times. The only metric that matters is convenience. Rules apply to you. Suddenly you're an advertiser. This week on Social Minds. I don't need every brand to be my mate. We sat down with Tim Donald, who's just joined us here at Social Chain as creative director after years of experience working on some of the world's biggest brands, including Nike Football, Johnny Walker and Gap. Yes, it was a podcast filled with interesting brand insights, including why Weatherspoon's decision not to have music in their pubs may have inspired their decision to leave social media, why brand purpose doesn't necessarily mean replanting the Amazon rainforest, And when we're in 2050 and there's no more emotions left to brand, what is the last differentiating advantage brands have? Even though I'm not a customer and never will be, I could be considered a brand advocate. All this and more coming up. Why are so many major brands known by all but loved by few now? It's a good question and it's something that I've always found really interesting. If you think about it, most products now or brands or whatever it may be, there's not that many things that come out that are so entirely new that they just instantly differentiate themselves from other brands. So you get to a point where the decisions that you make on what you want to buy is more driven by which brands you like more than down to a feature or something that it does. Yeah. If you think about like lifestyle products, for example, like beers there's there's very few differentiating 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 uh, <laughs> factors uh, between them so you're left on a, a brand level of thinking uh, you know do I what does this product say about me when I'm drinking it what is does it do it does it align with what I think and believe in or mm. so the, the decisions that you make are, are really swayed by how much you like a brand as well as how good that brand is or how good that brand is perceived to be yeah but then we seem to be at a point where we were having a conversation and it seems like these big brands are losing market share to these smaller, more agile, social first brands that have come along. I'm mm. just wondering what you could tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, if you think about some of the most established brands, you know, your Coca-Colas of the, of the world that have been going for a very long time, in the, t- in the lifespan of that brand, audiences have, have changed dramatically. Mm. And the brands get bigger and bigger, but the way people consume media and buy products has has radically changed. And I think a brand gets to a certain size where they are so so known that their focus is less on communicating the brand's personality or their point of view it shifts onto like a more of a product focus because they're just saying a new product's come out mm-hmm. and you start to communicate on that level and newer brands that have come out now are more adapted to what modern audiences and consumers are looking for yeah so obviously they've got an advantage because they understand more the on the grassroots level what people are looking for and, and of course sort of adapted mm-hmm. to that when you're a huge brand it's a it's a much bigger thing to do to shift dramatically to meet a consumer's needs because you're a huge machine mm. global multiple uh, markets and that kind of change doesn't doesn't happen easily no. so these brands that are, that are starting now they're new they're interesting they're talking to people in their language they're going to the people places where people are and because of that they they are gaining market share can you um, give us some examples of any like new social first brands that you think are doing that really well? I feel like I talk about this brand like every five minutes, but um, Glossier for me is 
one of the best examples mm-hmm. in my mind of a, of, a, of a brand that started very much social first and started with community and built the brand from the community. Yeah, because I first remember seeing them on Instagram just in sponsored yeah. ads and all of a sudden they've become like one of the leading beauty brands like in the world. Very, very quickly as well yeah. in, in the grand scheme of things. And it's purely because they understood the need to have a community around the product and the value that a community around the product brings. Yeah. And, you know, they had a... Uh, open WhatsApp group initially that was literally just asking people like, what products do you want us to sell? Mm. And so the actual products that they sell came from people who were buying them, Yeah, the ideas. And when, uh, if anyone saw a particular product that they didn't sell, they would say, oh, I've seen this somewhere else. It would be, would be great if you could do it. They would start to build that into yeah, the, to their product range. Listening. That's good. Yeah. What about on the other end of the spectrum? Are there any examples, say, of these sort of big machine brands that you think could be doing more? Um, it's a good question and without wanting to like drop anyone name in and it. shame uh, name, name and shame, shame. <laughs> well I, um i suppose any multinational brand like i've i've done some work with uh, the likes of uh, johnny walker recently mm. and you know they're obviously they're huge they're one of the biggest whiskey brands in the world and uh, they're in pretty much every country every market and they have actually recently adapted and, and changed to to be a bit more um in line with what modern consumers looking for yeah. um but that change doesn't happen quickly i was gonna like say I said like before. is it working out for them at like for such a like heritage brand when you're trying to make a pivot that large i mean yeah like, is it is it working for them i mean it's, it's very new it's yeah, hard to Say. It must be challenging. Yeah, but like I say, that time kind of change doesn't happen quickly and there's a lot of build up to that. And the difficulty comes when you're trying to basically try to understand or, or show or demonstrate to someone the value of more emotive um, marketing, I suppose. And the value of that is always a bit intangible. Yeah. Because obviously sales has, and um, more traditional marketing and a more rational messaging has a measurable effect. Yeah. You put out a message. You can track sales, you can see how people are engaging with stuff, but a lot of brand building work and emotive work is is a much longer game. And sometimes you have to do work that doesn't have a direct response to it. And to particularly to market driven organizations that are very much sales focused mm. it's hard to get them to shift from that and do something where they go and hang on a minute my sales are suffering mm. but longer term that will yeah. have a, a bigger effect hard to like pitch people the big pictures and i completely yeah. agree i mean i guess i asked because i want to get your thoughts on a recent advertising campaign that came out um over the last week which is burger king's moldy whopper yeah. and it's had completely mixed reviews i mean i'll get your opinion in a minute but i think it was um, like a really bold, irreverent campaign. And for me, Burger King are doing this now. They've got a new CMO. They're playing the long game. Um, and we were talking about it yesterday and saying everyone thinks of them as second to McDonald's. Like they know that. So they're just really trying to carve out their identity, I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, doing a lot to sort of be this sort of we don't we don't care kind of brand. Like we are just going to be really out there. They're like building people's respect, I guess, in that sense. Yeah. But this campaign, if you look at it like isolated, you get those like skeptics. People are saying, well, this is not here to sell burgers. This isn't selling me burgers. I would like to see the direct influence on sales. But I think, you know, their objective was um, this is a burger that doesn't have any artificial preservatives. They were trying to get that across in a really sort of bold way. Mm. But I don't know. Like, what, what did you think about it? I, I agree. I mean, I've got mixed feelings about it because I think if you're 
I think it was. I read someone's comment on it um, that said, "If the if the bar is that low for fast food that you need to show that it does decompose, <laughs> then that's a bit of a weird place to be with it for a food product. You would hope that most food that you eat is would do that, and if it doesn't, then it's like that shouldn't be eaten, really. Yeah. But I think well, it's, that, was, that was the thing because McDonald's like had that um, the guy from Iceland last year got a McDonald's burger. I don't know what type, like which one it was. Like, it might have been a Big Mac, and basically made it into some sort of museum exhibit and yeah. said you know this burger's 10 years old and it barely it like barely been uh been touched really there was no damage to it yeah so this is kind of like an opposite a bit of a dig at mcdonald's being like our food's normal definitely as it should, yeah, be. As it should be but i i agree with what, what you said in that there there's no expectation from that that the, this is gonna it's not promotion it's not price driven it's yeah. not saying like you get a burger for 99p or whatever it might be it's yeah. just pure brand work which is I like Burger King more because I feel like they're being honest with me. Yeah, me too. And that's the ultimate takeout from that is that I start to view Burger King in a different light as opposed to other fast food brands. Yeah. And again, like, is there that much of a difference between a, a Burger King burger and a McDonald's burger apart from, you know, personal preference? Mm. Actually, on a product level, probably not a great deal. Yeah, it's, so they have to differentiate with that yeah. sort of brand messaging. And I mean, their, um, their CMO, whose name escapes me at the moment, I think it's quite new. And um, like that's his whole plan. Like They've got a whole new strategy for this year and it is on this brand level, which isn't directly influencing sales, but in the long game, hopefully will. Mm. Um, because they do have to take the time to carve out that identity. But what about um, like the rest of the industry? Are like CMOs starting to catch on to the fact that you have to, um, you know, take a step back from product pushing and sales? And are people getting wiser to it, or is it still is there still work to be done, like convincing them? I think it's it's difficult to say because I, I would I would think that at a CMO level, most really good CMOs will know that. It's how much they can affect that change in and the size of the organization. If you're in a, a global brand and you're you have markets that that operate sort of autonomously, that thinking can be on the top level. Everyone knows, yeah, we have to do this brand work. Mm. But how do you get that to filter down? And it's such a complex thing that the desire might be there, but the ability to do it is is what holds some brands back, yeah. I think. Probably why it's easier for like new brands or smaller brands. Yeah. Because they're still like building it out from the ground up. They can be whoever they want. Yeah. But then that puts the onus on people like us to actually show the value of that, which is difficult to do. But yeah. we should be helping them to sell that into the markets and showing the value of what that actually does longer term. Mm. And, you know, when it comes down to more emotive choices between brands, like how can we raise the, the profile and how can we challenge perceptions or how can we... Um, provide values or purpose that people can align with in order to make those decisions and and choose brands which they feel represent them or mm. that they align with. So yeah. it's just, it puts more pressure on us definitely because it's a hard thing to demonstrate. But yeah, I think instinctively, and if you look at the psychology behind how people choose things, it is all there, but it's just us showing the value. Mm. Has that changed loads over the years, Tim? Is it just because, you know, emotion's always been prevalent in advertising and marketing? Is it just that through the social media lens, it's put like a magnifying glass on it to such an extent? Or yeah, I think I think it has always been there because, like I said, it's an innately human thing. Like mm. you you're, you gravitate towards things that you like, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how you choose things is often on face value, or it's a, what uh, a lot of it's to do with nonverbal communication, the mm -hmm. things you choose, and 
like the clothes you wear and the brands that you have are all extensions of what you believe yourself to be or what you would like other people to believe you to mm. be. So that isn't a new thing that's been around for a long time. Um, yeah. And, the, and to add to that, I've always kind of early beginnings in social media, always saw how it would work and translate to clothes. But it's in, always interesting to see in like an FMCG sense, you know what yeah. I mean? I buy fairy, I don't buy personal and all of that. Yeah. Is it kind of, we've been speaking about it a little bit, like this whole greenwashing idea and having purpose. Do you ever yeah. sort of, as a you know creative director, think like, oh, this is just a bit bollocks, you know what I mean? It's yeah. just yeah. a bit stupid. Like, are you going to go for time. product A over product B because product A planted 50 more trees this year? Or at what point does it become, it's a better product for, you know? Mm. It's a very good point. And <laughs> I think... Ultimately, purpose doesn't have to mean a worthy purpose. To me, pur that's not really what purpose means. It's a purpose is the reason why you do what you do. Yeah. And most brands will have that reason somewhere. Yeah, I mean, you don't need to be emotionally invested in the washing up liquid that you choose. But emotion also doesn't need to mean extremes of emotion. Whenever you say the word emotion, you think of extremes, mm. happiness, anger. It's not, it's just whether or not you like it is, is an emotion. Is mm. That is the intangible and um, emotional response to something rather than a rational thing in that this will clean my clothes well yeah. is mm. the, the rational side of it. But everything else on top of that is is emotional because it's, it's not based on function. It's based on how much you like the aesthetic of it does it align with um how i have the things in my house and that's all the layers on top of function that is controlled by brand work what if the function of a product is genuinely poor but our brief is to make that emotional connection and uh, make it stand out and differentiate it is it possible i guess to polish a turd with <laughs> emotion um i'm gonna make you choke there sorry <laughs> Uh, it's, not, it's not polishing the turd, it's rolling it in glitter is the, <laughs> is the, <laughs> the right term. But I mean, yes and no. It, like The purpose has to be authentic. And people have now, because of the exposure that we have to information and everything that you can see about all the brands that are around at the moment, people have very good bullshit detectors and you can't just come up with a purpose that doesn't feel right for the brand. Yeah. It has to be something that comes from, like I, like I said, the reason why that brand exists, why it was started. There's usually a story in there that you can bring out that they haven't told or mm. if it's not authentic, it, it just won't work. It's, there's no there's no amount of polishing you can do to that turd to make it yeah. work. It's it's It has to be real. And all we do is bring those stories out and tell them in a more compelling way that, yeah. that people can like, relate to. Like changing perceptions must be like difficult. How do you even go about something like that, especially if the brand has been going for a while and people have this idea of what the product is and who the brand is sort of set in their mind? Mm. How do you go about changing that? It's very, very difficult thing to do and it's not uh, it's something that takes time. But the way I always think about it is that your perception of a brand is built up cumulatively by all the different things that you see, the different um, touch points, what they put out on social, the poster, the TV advert, whatever it is. Over time, you build an overall picture from all of these separate messages. If you think for a brand that you know really well, and if someone was to ask you, like, how, tell me what this brand's about. If you can say that in a sentence, what that brand represents to you, then they've been more effective at communicating their purpose or yeah. their point of view or whatever it may be. And if a brand doesn't have a good idea of what their central purpose is or their organizing thought, whatever you want to call it, and it's not being communicated effectively across all their channels, then you're going to have very conflicting messages from people on what that brand is and on who they are because mm. everyone comes in at a different point. So 
I think the best thing that you can do is just be consistent with your messaging and be authentic, be honest. People respond very well to transparency and are looking to brands that speak honestly about who they are and what they do. Mm. That's as much as you can really do and just be consistent and keep doing that and also do things that feel like they don't have a direct benefit to you, if you know what I mean. Like yeah. If you do more benevolent content that shows that you understand your audience or mm. just do something that's entertaining, that there isn't a hidden sales message in or something like that. That kind of work goes a long way to build trust in a brand mm. and just make me like them more. Yeah, so. I actually think the best adverts, in my opinion, don't mention the product at all. I quite like the ones where it is just, you know, it's it's like a message from them. It feels like you know them. It's getting across that purpose or the identity or whatever it is. Mm. And it's not, sale on now, we've got this, go buy it. I, I just prefer those. I don't yeah. know about you. Oh, well, just think about, you know, being sort of like, see, see a lot of ads, obviously. Do you feel that advertising in this age that we live in now has become more wishy-washy because of that? I mean, compared to, say, people always talk about, like, you know, the 1990s and the early 2000s, it was a time mm. of great wit and entertainment, and there was all this kind of, you know, it was all about entertainment and making you laugh, and now it seems like a lot of advertising we see is purely, you know, for the purpose of tugging on your, you know, mm. your heartstrings and its influences doing good by the environment and whatnot. Mm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, good advertising is good advertising. If it's done well, it works well. And you read a lot of commentary about people saying that, you know, traditional advertising is dead. And But, you know, you get a great ad and it, people love it. And that also does a great job of making you like a brand more. Just because it's an ad doesn't mean it's necessarily, you know, mm. wrong or they should be doing it a different way. And again, with purpose, it doesn't always have to be mm. a big uh, environmental thing that you're doing or like it's just about communicating effectively who you are as a yeah. brand I think maybe that's why it gets so wishy-washy because so many brands do interpret purpose mm. as you know doing something for the environment or yeah. like the world and that's when it becomes a bit samey-samey and when it's not authentic because they're just trying to do what they think they should be doing mm. mm-hmm. yeah but yeah it's like when we had John and John as a uh, creative director and copywriter in the other day saying um, you know it's about finding out why you exist and, and why you're there and just saying that and that yeah. should be different for every brand right that is that is purpose for me that's what that means and it's it it does get misinterpreted i think and it, and there is a pressure on brands to feel like they're making a, or at least have a point of view on mm. something that is like current or relevant and people care about mm. if you are a washing up liquid for example like yes you can be like natural ingredients and all that kind of stuff if that's your brand yeah but it doesn't necessarily have to be something big and world changing yeah. it all it is is you know, if you're looking for a brand that aligns with your values, the brand needs to share their values in order for you to decide whether or not that aligns with your own. And yeah. that's literally, in my mind, all it is. So uh, I want to go back to these social first brands as well for, mm. for a moment. What happens when these brands scale over the course of many years? Do you think that kind of, it's still easy to keep that kind of dogmatic, disruptive kind of air of, you know, we have WhatsApp groups with our audiences and all of that? Or, you know, is that something that you do probably lose over time the bigger you get? It's definitely easier to lose that as you, as you, as you scale. I think that the important thing is working out what are the important parts of the brand that you can't lose. And for someone like Glossier, for example, it's the community aspect of it is it's a founding principle of the brand. And it's it might not be a WhatsApp group anymore, but that listening to and involving their consumers in a community is so fundamental to them as a brand that to lose that would be to lose the essence of the brand itself. So I think um, it's always going to be difficult to keep that um 
kind of challenger brand mentality mm -hmm. as, you, as you get bigger and bigger. But there are certain things and just being very self-aware of what makes you who you are. Mm -hmm. And again, that is the brand's purpose. Mm -hmm. If you keep that and you communicate that effectively, then you can still keep that same feel. Is there a worry, I guess, if a brand then start, they get to like 20 years old and they have had those foundations really strong since the beginning. Everyone knows their purpose and knows who they are. But through their advertising and campaigns, you know, how many times can you flog the same story? Is there a worry of being um, like repetitive or is that message getting tired? Is that is that a worry at all? If like you have one thing that you're known for and it's like how many ways and how many times can you tell people that? There's always going to be times where you have to adapt and change. And I don't think that you always have to be ramming your purpose down people's throats. How you communicate, that's the thing that changes. Mm. Um, you're still sort of standing by your principles, but you just find different ways to, to talk about it or, you know, bring in other brands or collaborations with people who share your ideals and expand into other areas and different creative ways of bringing that to life. But mm. it should all still feel like it comes from that brand. Yeah, You should be able to see it and recognize that for what it is and who it's come from, regardless of what form it takes. And mm. again, that's that's on us to find these interesting ways to bring that to life. And then, you know, people bring out new products and there is still sales stuff to be done. I'm not for a minute suggesting that brands don't do any of that stuff because that's still really important. Yeah. But it's all about there the is, ratio. Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a split between the kind of work that you put out and there's a split between the kind of channels you put it out on. There's some channels that are really good for that brand work. There's some channels that it doesn't work so well on and it's balance. Yeah. What do you think that ratio should be? Like if we're talking um, purpose-led communication and product-led communication, what's the split like percentage-wise? The diplomatic answer is probably it, it's different for every brand, but I think it depends on, like you said, if, there, if there's a brand in need of a perception change or if, if it's a huge multinational brand that has got a bit stale and is starting to lose market share to newer, more social first brands, then they probably need to work a little bit harder on the brand level and uh, the percentage might shift in favor of brand work. Mm. But other brands, you know, that are doing better on that probably need to go the other way and it's always going to be shifting. Mm. I don't think it will ever just go, okay, we're going to do 60-40 and that's going to be it for us now and we're just going to stick to that. Yeah, so keeping in tune with what, what needs yeah. doing. I know we've spoken about the media, Tim. I'm just wondering on a kind of generational perspective what the change has been because again you know maybe it's just because I'm sort of you know within that kind of world it seems but we often talk about purpose in quite millennial gen z way mm. do boomers and gen x's and say you're over 50s that you talk to do you think they have the same relationships and expectations of brands that we do now or I, I think was, it's a very different thing. Relationship, yes, but expectation, probably not. Because again, that, that communication of purpose doesn't always have to be really overt. A lot of the time it's, it's subconscious. You, you, you're choosing whether or not you like a brand based on what they're saying, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily so conscious like, this is who we are, this is what we believe in. Do you agree? Then you should mm -hmm. buy our product. It's, it doesn't always have to be that clear cut. Yeah, You just... Um, doing work that feels right for you as a brand and mm. people will sort of subconsciously gravitate towards yeah. that. But expectation is probably a much newer thing. So we know that um, younger consumers do have expectations of brands to be more um, inclusive, to be more sustainable. Yeah. So it does change, but they're really kind of different questions. I sometimes worry though that because obviously it is true and it is important data and we know that millennials and Gen Z in particular really care about environmental issues and that's a strong value for them but it's just one value and I think there's a little bit of um, 
I don't know how to say it, but like the brands are sort of looking at that and just running with that. And that's where we come out with all this purpose-led advertising that's only focused on the environment because they know it's important to that age bracket, but are forgetting it's maybe not the only thing that's important to them as well. Or they're sort of, maybe that's not their thing, but they're just trying to be that for that audience because there Mm. are those expectations in place. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a huge amount of pressure on brands to to be more sustainable and and they should be just generally um, being more sustainable where possible because, you know, we all have a responsibility to do that. but it's, it's more possible for, for some brands and less for others. And I think as long as you're transparent and you, you're clear about where you stand on something, mm. you can't please everybody. And people who are hardcore, you have to be sustainable. I'm not going to buy your product. Yeah, They won't buy it and they'll buy something that is sustainable. But yeah. I think that... It's a difficult one, but most of the time, some brands can enable people to make more conscious decisions about the things that they buy. It might be something that's organic or I think generally, culturally, there's a shift from that kind of scare tactics of, you know, plastic's going to pollute everything and like showing plastic in the sea. Obviously, that's bad. And that shocking imagery, because it's been overused, people get desensitized to it. So yeah. now I've noticed a shift from scare tactics to more positive um, positive ways to change your habits. Mm. So it's not about scaring me into not buying plastic. It's about providing opportunities for me to use less plastic. Yeah. And it's, it, it's less about... Um, being perfect and doing everything right, but taking steps towards doing things right or yeah. making considered choices about the things that you buy. Yeah, definitely. I can see um, that working as well. I think people don't like to be lectured that much sometimes and we end up going the other way. And it's also, it's the scale of the problem seems so insurmountable that you yeah, just like... Yeah, you think, oh God, what can I do? Yeah. It's uh, nice to have a, like someone tell you if it's a brand or not. It'd be like, yo, like we can help. Here's a thing. And that's going to make me feel like warmly towards them. Exactly. And if you're presented with this huge problem and it doesn't take into the consideration the the context of your own life. Like, you know, a lot of sustainable products are more expensive. So if you're on a low income, you're a single mm. parent, those choices, you might love to be able to make those choices, but it's not always possible. Yeah. But you do what you can. Yeah. And well, that's also fine. What do you make of like the convenience element then? Because there are, there are a lot of brands still that maybe aren't sustainable or aren't good for the environment, but because they're so convenient, so affordable, they're still extremely popular, even with the younger generation. So I don't know, is this like environmental thing as like prevalent to people as we think? Um, it's, it's such a complex thing that, I mean, as, as time goes on, those more considered choices should be more democratized and making the good choice should also be the easy choice. Yeah, We're not there yet. And again, a lot of pressure is put on brands to be the ones leading that. Yeah. Um, but it's not always the case that, you know, there's legislation, there's politics involved mm-hmm. and it, it's a hugely complex thing. And again, it's about doing what you can within the context of your life or the, within the context of the brand. If you're a brand that is not sustainable, then there may be some other ways that they can mm. do something good as well. Yeah. I think, uh, like you said, transparency goes a long way as yeah. well. There are a lot of companies, like fast fashion brands in particular, that don't have the best history, but now are like doing as much as they can and are being really transparent about the process, and people are like respecting them for that. Yeah, you set goals and you work towards them, and um, you're honest about what you what you can and can't do. Mm. That's as much as you can do within the context, and it's about making small positive change rather than trying to drastically change everything immediately. Yeah. 
I want to step away from purpose for a moment to mm. talk about the uh, the dollar bill. The reason we'll sort <laughs> of hear um, you're hearing a lot. Of, I've been hearing a lot in the marketing and advertising world at the moment about people saying we're getting very good at raising awareness. I'm just wondering if you think that that's almost sort of shifted the focus from sales. Is is it the fact that we're good at raising awareness, but we've almost lost sight of that need to mm. kind of just convert people and sort of grab them by the scruff and be like, well, you know. You put that awareness to use. <laughs> yeah, I mean, awareness in and of itself isn't valuable unless you do something with it. Yeah. Uh, you can be aware of something, but unless you're like, okay, I know about that now. If, you, if you've not asked someone to do something with that information, yeah. then it's pointless. So yeah. awareness is never a goal in its, in its own right. Awareness is a, is a means to an end most of the time. Mm. And what, what about the conversations you have with brands now in terms of a brand working out their problem? Because because obviously we'd know, you know, in advertising terms, they'd be like, well, we want to sell more, again, washing up liquid, we want to sell more of this. Are they coming to you with those same challenges? Or because I've heard before that, you know, when it comes to social media, sometimes brands don't know what they want. They want millennials, they want Gen Z, they want, you know, Instagram likes, they want this. What's what's the kind of de facto metrics nowadays? Well, a lot of the time there's, there's knee-jerk reactions to things where at one point it's all about followers, it's all about numbers. So we want to get these many followers. Um, but there's no real thought behind why. Mm. And you see that with a lot of emerging platforms. It's like, we want to we want to be on TikTok. So, well, why do you want to be on TikTok and what value is it going to give you? So I think it's our responsibility to question the value behind those things and yeah. really understand not just why they want that, but what problem are they, are they trying to solve through that action? Mm. Yeah. Mm. And that's the important thing is that if, if you can get to the problem, then you can start to look at whether or not that's the right solution. But mm. you do see a lot of the times just responding to things that other people are doing and it may or may not be right for your brand you know it's worked for them but mm. it might not be solving the problem that you have yeah, yeah it's, something say, that, it's something that Mike says all the time yeah. like people used to come to him and say okay we want engagement and he'll be like why like no what do you really want or what kind of brand are you it's like okay well we're like a shoe brand he's like well then you want to sell more shoes yeah. but they think they want engagement because that's what they're told to want but it's yeah. it's like always like starting with that isn't it that sort of like top mm. of the funnel approach getting the eyeballs and mm. then actually using those eyeballs that you've got and using that engagement mm. to then follow up with like product messaging that you can actually do something with that eyeballs you know the eyeballs that you've got and i was gonna i was gonna say because it, it seems like social media definitely we're at a point of maturing now to go back to the overarching question do you think some of these brands having gone through this kind of process of social media being new and then kind of aging and then maturing do you think they've suffered as a result of you know not knowing what they want in this new kind of world of media that we're at Probably, yeah. I mean, and it's also not understanding how to effectively use channels as well. I mean, you see it often of, you know, just putting a TV ad onto Instagram and it not really being suitable for the channel. Yeah. And it's, it, it, I think that you, you're seeing that less and less as, you know, brands get more aware of how to use different channels and mm. what works and what doesn't. Mm. But it's still, you, you, you still see, you know, Pinterest is the kind of graveyard of content in some respects. <laughs> like it, no one really knows how to use it effectively. So it's just kind of like, well, we put stuff on there and people will, will find it. And there's no real strategy involved in how to yeah. use it. And Cause, yeah, because, well, I just think seemingly, 
you know, I, I sort of sympathise with brands sometimes because mm. we, we may never have been having this conversation if Facebook didn't start selling ads yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. And it, it, it seems to me It must be tough, especially if you're like a, like a brand that is like 20, 30 years old and all of a sudden, like you're so experienced, you know what you're doing, you know what you're selling and all of a sudden you have to learn something new and you feel like you're brand new again. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But again, it's all, it, it's all about context because if you are a heritage brand, then some of those channels are not going to be right for you as a brand. You need to understand where the parameters are mm. because as soon as you put yourself outside of that that's when it starts to feel wrong and Do starts to jar. you think there is such a brand that like shouldn't be on social? I mean is it even a choice now not to be on there as like part of your strategy at least let's say one channel like no one should be doing all of them. Um, someone was telling you recently like Weatherspoons have, have decided to yeah. stop doing social. I, I mean they weren't very... Spoons isn't it? It's yeah. like a national institution. Everyone's always going to go into Spoons but, but you think about... it might be nice to see them on Twitter as well. I'm sure they'd be funny. But if you think about it though the, their whole remit doesn't really suit social media. They don't have music in the pubs. Yeah. They have a very like whether or not you like them as a brand they have a very distinct thing that mm. is theirs mm. and I didn't know this until fairly recently that their whole thing and this may not may not be right, but um, their whole thing is based on um, George Orwell's description of like a perfect pub, mm. and they they kind of modelled it on that, and it was about having no music, being able to have conversations and talk and everything like that. So social media for them like it might not might not suit them as a brand, mm. and if yeah, why not? It's such a rare thing though, that isn't it? It is rare, and uh, I think you you just have to understand whether the value again. It so it all comes down to the value of. Are you getting what you need out of that channel? Could you be doing it better? Mm. If it's not solving a problem for you and you're not getting results from it, then yeah. there's no harm in not using it and, yeah. and focusing on the other areas that are getting results. Yeah. But that's, again, that, that comes on to us to help brands to identify yeah, what, what's working, what isn't working. And yeah, well, if, if it's not working, don't do it. I think there is something to be said for could you be using it better? Because another thing Mike touched, uh, Mike touched on, do you remember when uh, Lush cut their socials mm, in yeah, the UK? Yeah. But he actually did some digging on like their activity like in the past and they'd said basically it wasn't working for them they were spending too much time and resource on it but they weren't using it very well so they'd sort of given it a go but not not like found out how to use it properly or not really given it a proper go and then decided not to use it altogether but they could be really good on it if they knew what they were doing yeah and that's it's definitely the case it's either it's not being used effectively or it's just not an effective channel for, for them yeah regardless of what they do on it but it's you have to try stuff you have to work that out through doing you can't really predict how that's going to work mm. what if you could shed light nowadays on the kind of uh, where the line stands between branded content and your advertising content. Is it as simple as one's the kind of brand building work and one's, you know, your, your sales funnel stuff? Or Because we seem to talk about branded content a lot more often than advertising in the way. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's using the platforms in the in in the right way. That some platforms are, are more suited to more long form content, and um, I think when we talked about earlier in building that brand work and doing more benevolent content that has no no sales focused and it is about brand building, then doing content that is entertainment first is a great way of doing that as long as it has a reason for being. Like it, again, it tracks back to that purpose or or point of view or whatever it may be. That then yeah great do do more of that um but the advertising has its function and it, its role um but those things have to work together and it has to feel like it all comes from the same place yeah and that's yeah. the important thing it's nice really to see a brand doing both it's hard to see like more 
like traditional advertising still remains on TV and out of home and then branded content comes in online, mm-hmm. you can have like, a really well-rounded campaign. Yeah. Like Burger King, another one, the one that um, Connor was mentioning the other day, oh, I've forgotten the name of it, but when they, uh, they basically set it up so they knew that people had to drive past a McDonald's to get to a Burger King, yeah. so they sent people on like a tour around it and they had like uh, like station, like check-in points outside the McDonald's, they had things online, they had mm-hmm. like different points like along mm-hmm. the way and it like all came together really mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. What that does as well is not just how the the content itself makes you feel about the brand, but what the type of thing that you do says about you as a brand. So, you know, Burger King as another example, they've done lots of quite innovative stuff recently. So subconsciously I'm thinking, oh, Burger King, they're a really like innovative brand. They're really a head of the curve. They, they take risks. I like them more because of that. And it's mm. by virtue of how they're doing it as well as what they're doing. So yeah. they did that um, thing a little while back with the Alexa skill where anytime someone said Whopper, it would mm-hmm. come up. It annoyed the hell out of people. Oh, and it's so clever. It got, <laughs> it got loads of abuse. I think people were changing the Wikipedia <laughs> um, entry about what the ingredients were, so they had to stop it. But oh, no. <laughs> even if it worked or not, it got loads of coverage yeah. and people started to think, oh, that, I like Burger King because they're they're more risky yeah. and you know if you've got McDonald's being quite you know nicey nicey uh, and not doing that then yeah. in my mind I'm going oh Burger King are cooler. Yeah, I mean um, I do think that, but I guess like not just Burger King. This is where I can sort of take myself out of my marketing head, mm. which like we all struggle to do I think sometimes and try and be like a consumer about it. And I see Burger King stuff I'm full of admiration for it, but I just don't like Whoppers. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I just prefer McDonald's. So is there like, like, and I love all of their campaigns. I'm like the top level of brand love you can have for them. Mm. But it's still, it's still not taking me into their store more than it is to McDonald's. So like, is it really possible to 100% change someone's perception? This is what I mean. If it's maybe a bad product, not a bad product, but personal mm. preference. And like, you've got something set in your mind. There's an interesting side effect of liking a brand, which which I think is fascinating, is that, again, to, to mention Glossier, I'm not ever going to buy any Glossier products. Yeah, you love them. I'm not their demographic, <laughs> but I, I they could consider me a brand advocate because I, I talk about them. I promise. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not even their target audience, but I talk about them to people yeah. who potentially are. Yeah. So even though I'm not a customer and never will be, I could be considered a brand advocate. Mm. And how many times have you talked about Burger King today? I know, I won't shut up about them lately. <laughs> exactly. That's a really good it's point, actually. That's a really good point. You're sort of bringing it out the room and, mm. yeah, like convincing um, other people without, like, maybe even knowing it. Yeah, the sentiment extends further than just the people who yeah. are buying or could potentially buy your products. Yeah. It's about the people who just like you as a brand and will talk yeah. about you. And word of mouth is still so valuable. Yeah, massive. And it happens all the time with, you know, you have people who love sports cars. Or like uh, luxury cars, Rolls Royce being like the epitome of luxury cars. I'm never going to buy one. I can't afford a Rolls Royce. I will never own Yet. one. Well, you never know, say never. Play my cards right. But, uh, <laughs> I, w- I in a conversation about cars, you, I might go, "Oh, yeah, Rolls Royce are amazing. Have you seen this?" And uh, I might have read something and I'll pass that on. And so the overall sentiment of Rolls Royce mm. is reinforced that it is the the, yeah. the you know the epitome of luxury cars. So they've relied on that for there. years, haven't they? That's yeah, been there, the, mm. I've been every time you see a Rolls Royce on the road, it's a, a advert for the brand, isn't it? In mm. that yeah. respect, mm. um, want to do a little bit of future casting again because I said you know we got to that point where social media. Is maturing brands obviously getting better at social media they've sort of 
sort of not making the same mistakes with TikTok as they may be made with other platforms. Will we get to a point where these kind of social first brands so full of promise and so new, they're kind of strangled out of the competition, do you think, by these, you know, big players? Um, I mean, if if uh, you get, um, you know, bigger brands that are more savvy and, and do adapt, then, yeah, there's a, it will change the landscape again because they have the budgets, they have the reach, and they have already the, the brand awareness. So, yeah, it will get more difficult for uh, for new brands to to differentiate themselves and to grow. I wonder if at that point it's a similar thing with what Facebook's been doing. Does your kind of fate resting uh, being acquired? So Harry's, for instance, believe it's Harry's, the Razors, I think mm, Unilever yeah, acquired is. them about a year ago or something, I think. Mm. So I wonder if acquisitions then become more prevalent of these smaller brands because it's like what's been going on with Facebook, isn't yeah. it? You know, people launch a new tool, yeah. Facebook buys it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the whole thing, isn't it? If you can't compete with them, then buy them. Yeah. <laughs> but that's yeah. kind of... That's happened in a lot of industries for a long time. It happened in craft beer when you would see these sort of seemingly independent small craft beers and then you're like, oh, actually, they're owned by like Molson Coors or something like that. Mm. And it's that's been going on for a, for a long time and probably won't stop. It's, um, I think it's that need to be a big global entity but still feel small mm. yeah. and I guess it, yeah, you have to get realistic with yourself at a point and be like okay we've reached this level like Unilever can't be like your little brand next door anymore can it like it's massive mm. it knows that so mm. instead of trying to be it you should just let them be them yeah and it's uh, on the, from the other side of it as well it's not always just the, the big evil corporations buying these cool little brands yeah. but smaller brands they'll reach a point where they, they need to scale beyond what they can what they can do themselves yeah. and uh, acquisition enables them to go to that next level within their their growth so it's not always a bad thing um, and it's not like uh, we're gonna we're all gonna be owned by like three three companies uh, in the future <laughs> there's a few brands doing this you know getting to, to sort of 360 the conversation doing this uh oh, i don't know if you can call it well purpose like you know like we defined but this personality kind of marketing mm. oatly brewdog seem like the best examples that come to mind straight away. What have you seen? What, what, what's your take on what they're doing so well that, you know, we're now all drinking oat milk, for instance? And I think it's got, it comes... <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big fan. But um, I think it comes down to, again, it's just having something that it feels distinctly you as a brand. Mm. And I, I don't think many people would be able to see an Oatly ad and not go, oh, that's Oatly, or, mm. or, or hear that tone and uh, and and recognise it and... It, it it feels like it's ownable and unique for that brand and it and it and it works. Um but that kind of you know, it was innocent that first started doing that type yeah. of thing and yeah. they were, after they did it, everyone started doing it. It's like oh mm. every brand wants to be your mate kind of thing. They're all talking to you yeah. like, Hey man, how's it going? Hey, sometimes <laughs> it's sometimes it's cringe. But like Brew Dog is such a good example. Mm. Yeah. Because anything they put out, you literally do just feel like they're mates. Yeah. You really do. Yeah. I don't know how they do it. I mean, I um put something out on LinkedIn the other day saying so if we were looking through loads of brand guidelines for some research here and I just noticed how little of them, how few have um, like any reference to tone of voice or what sort of language they want to use or mm. how they translate that personality in words and sort of put a post out complaining a little bit or just putting the question to people um, like saying if you if you don't know how to communicate your brand in words um, and like be able to differentiate yourself and like someone should look at your brand and be able to say okay that comes from X brand that comes from them and loads of people commented saying it was a really high bar to set and that it was an unrealistic goal. I mean, is it or should we be aiming for that? Do you think it's possible? 
I mean, it, if you're if you're seeing it as I have to beat I have to beat Oatly, or we have to be better than whoever it I is. Say like, better, just like be identifiable. Yeah. Or like differentiate yourself between other brands, and at the very least, between your direct competitors. I think that the, the focus is less on how to differentiate yourself, but how to just understand who you are. And, yeah. and you're right, there are very few brands who have done that level of uh, like introspective work where mm -hmm. they start to define language to the point where you have a distinct voice. And to go back to Brewdog, what they do really well is they have an attitude that mm. that goes through everything that they do. Yeah. And, you know, they've they've ruffled some feathers. They, they've been quite unapologetic at times, but that yeah. is a distinctly Brewdog characteristic. Yeah. And you can do any amount of work on different channels. And as long as that characteristic is there, you go, oh, that's Brewdog. Mm. So it's about defining what those characteristics are. And that's about consistency of messaging yeah. as well. I think a part of it with Brewdog is that like, because like, I don't know if everyone knows this, but you, most people probably do, you know that it started by the two guys. And so mm. whenever you hear mm -hmm. something, like read something from them, you just kind of like picture them delivering it to you. It's not like the Brewdog logo, it's them. Yeah. And that's another thing of like being like, they're a big company now. They started small and now they're huge. They're, they're, they're everywhere. And but you still see that small company when mm. you read the their ads and you see what they do. Yeah. But and that's what they've done really well is they they don't feel like a faceless company. They they feel human and a lot of making a brand likable or connecting with people on a on an emotional level is about appearing to be at least if you if you're not a small human brand there's good ways and bad ways of doing this but humanizing the brand to a degree and yeah some of that can be done through tone some of that is through brand story yeah. but it's all just about finding those those things that are true to the brand and communicating them in, a, in an effective yeah. way what would you say to the naysayers who think that personality undermines professionalism in terms of like language it can it definitely can it but it, again it's within the context of the brand like I don't need every brand to be my mate mm -hmm. I don't need my bank to be like hey like <laughs> I, 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 I'll, hey, I'll look after your money, money. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I don't I don't need every brand to talk like that yeah. and not every brand should but that again it's about understanding who you are and what the parameters are within your brand like some brands you want to sound official and reassuring and professional and that's fine and that's exactly what you should be doing and some brands like if you're an oat milk it's fine to be a bit like relaxed about it and mm. and if you're a beer brand you can be a bit of an asshole sometimes yeah it's fine tim the year is uh 2050 how long have we been um, sat here and <laughs> there are a thousand percent increase in the amount of brands that are about every emotion has been catered for by every brand cadbury's got joy first director kind of evasive and a bit uh, irreverent what becomes the kind of differentiating point what becomes the new advantage wow that's a tough question um <laughs> we're big on tough questions here yeah the differentiating thing is i mean it's it's less being differentiating i suppose and, and more just being recognizable that can only come through being distinct in how you communicate your brand so whether that's visually or verbally or or anywhere else i mean it's hard to say i mean as you move forward and the landscape gets more saturated with lots of brands and 
you know, perhaps everyone does go down this purpose route and everyone's being really transparent and honest, then it might go back around the other way again. Mm. And to differentiate, you have to stop doing that. And Mad Men 2.0. Start burning yeah, trees I mean, to the planet. No, then. let's not do that. There'll be no trees left to burn. De- definitely not uh, <laughs> reversing on any like sustainability things, but just like tonally, maybe brands will stop being on social. Maybe mm. that's what will happen in, in order to differentiate you. Sometimes you have to do something that's counterintuitive to what everyone else is yeah. doing. And, you know, as as time goes on and trends happen and people latch on to more and more trends, then you do have to sometimes just go the complete opposite way. Keep but, zagging away yeah, from the zigs. Exactly. 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 And that's something, regardless of how saturated the market is, that's something that you should always have an eye on anyway, is how can you be counterintuitive? How can you stand out and do things that get noticed like Burger King do, for example? We should have shares in Burger King. I know. This podcast has not been sponsored by Burger King, I promise. (laughs) But I bet you all go out and get a whopper now. On that public service announcement, it seems like a good place to wrap up. Thank you so much for joining us, Tim. No worries, thank you. Awesome. Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please remember to leave us a review on iTunes because it really, really helps and allows us to bring you brand new episodes every single week. This has been the Social Minds Podcast with myself, Theo Watts, Eve Young, and produced by Ollie Thompson. 